Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Adopting the Podcast. As always, I'm so excited to be your host for this journey. I'm Nicole Witt, Executive Director of the Adoption Consultancy, where we guide pre-adoptive parents step-by-step through the adoption journey. In adopting the podcast, we're going to focus on the issues, questions, and concerns you have as you get started in your adoption journey. This is for people just considering brand new to or pretty early in the process who are trying to get their questions answered and figure out their best path forward, learn about what to expect and how the process works. Now, obviously, not everyone who is interested in adoption fits the stereotypical profile of a, quote, traditional family. And what I mean by that are the checkboxes that an expectant mom often checks off regarding the types of families she wants to consider, which are often young, childless, heterosexual married couples who've been married for at least two years, who frequently are Christian, although that doesn't necessarily mean she's looking for an actively religious family. Um, Anyway, I work with lots and lots of families who are outside of those boxes. And although they can certainly adopt successfully, it sometimes is more difficult and or can take a little bit longer. So my guest today is going to help us explore what adoption looks like for those who live outside of those boxes. So please join me in welcoming Diana Schimmel. Diana is a partner at the law firm of Martin Katz, Scanlon and Schimmel, a boutique family law firm with offices in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, Princeton, New Jersey, and Center City, Philadelphia, serving families in Southern and Central New Jersey, as well as the greater Philadelphia area. She has been practicing family law for over a decade and specializes within that field in private domestic adoption. Diana is an attorney for adoptive parents looking to complete their families. She also works with step parents and second parents, as well as other extended family members looking to adopt their grandchildren, nieces, nephews, or stepchildren, including LGBT families. So thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today, Diana. Oh, my pleasure, Nicole. It's really, really nice to be able to talk about such a great topic. Well, in my introduction, I mentioned some groups that fall into sort of this non-traditional category, but can you clarify for us exactly who we're talking about today? Absolutely. And you mentioned this in in the intro of my work. We are talking about same-sex couples. We're also talking about singles. It has become increasingly more popular to adopt as an unmarried single person, not in a committed relationship. And again, same-sex couples who are not interested necessarily in going the surrogacy or um, IVF route of been adopting as Right, right. Now, are there any restrictions within those groups regarding who can and can't adopt? That's a great question. So I practice in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And one of the big questions people come to me at the outset is, do I have to be married? Will it help if I'm married? And in those two particular states, there is no requirement to actually have a marriage certificate. Um, You can be long-term domestic partners. You can be in a long-term committed relationship, whether it's same-sex or or heterosexual. And it doesn't matter if you are single either. Now, you mentioned this a little bit. Maybe it takes a little longer because perhaps a birth mother is looking for a two-parent household and you're a single person. But there's no legal restriction that would prevent someone in either of those scenarios I just described from adopting. I think we're seeing same-sex couples pursue adoption more especially in the last couple of years with COVID, surrogacy and pursuing family building with your own genetic material and the donor has become a little bit more difficult. 
So we are seeing same-sex couples turn to adoption, knowing that, of course, there are COVID challenges there too, but there's more availability, more options. And that's who I'm seeing as my client base right now. Okay. And then how are these parties coming to adoption or, and, or, I guess, how are they finding a match? What do you tend to see? So there's a variety of ways. Most of the clients that come to me, they think, all right, I need to find an attorney who's going to be that touchstone, that connector between the agencies, between the law, between the consultants, between the social workers. And when they come to me, they're just the beginning of the process. They're looking to get answers as to what the process will look like and who they need to be in touch with. So when they come to me, we talk specifically about their goals for accomplishing an adoption. And I'm the one that puts them in touch with prospective agencies, with consultants, with social workers, with who they need to talk to to start the Okay, great. I want to mention or go through some of the trends that I have been seeing in this area and see if they're kind of consistent with what you have been seeing. So for instance, I would say probably years ago now, when it comes to same-sex couples, I think it used to be easier for same-sex females, but now it seems that it's a little bit easier for same-sex males. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. I, I don't know if it's, you know, it's obviously very individual, but for some expectant moms, she might like the idea that, you know, she'll sort of always be the only mother figure, you know, around. I'm seeing that singles have become more acceptable to expectant moms. I'm seeing more older, hopeful adoptive parents becoming more common, even though that's not necessarily becoming more acceptable to expectant moms, but unmarried couples in a committed relationship are. So are those some of the same trends that you're seeing? Is there anything you'd want to add to that? I'm absolutely seeing those trends and both that you mentioned, more same-sex male couples and older. I actually have had clients come to me in their late 40s to early 50s. Mm-hmm. Now, the agencies that I've worked with, only one of the four or five that I've put clients in touch with has had an age requirement, so to speak. They had, had one sort of ceiling, but it, it still did not preclude. But agreed, I'm absolutely seeing much older couples. And especially when it comes to a single party who's looking to adopt, that person has tended to be a little bit older as well. And I agree with you that there has been a shift more so to being gender blind to to that scenario, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. One group we haven't talked about yet is single men. I find it's still extremely difficult for single men to adopt. What do you see with that? And, and do you think that's something that might change in the future? You know, I, I do see that is the lowest subset of, um, or the smallest subset, I should say, of clients that come to and I think that there's just much less acceptance societally and also much less support for single men mm-hmm. who are, are looking to adopt. I hope that that changes. I hope that the trend we saw with more same-sex male couples coming and welcoming the option of adoption will also foster in the same thing for the single male. And I think maybe we will see that trend as more single females choose to do not expand their families and men are, are left with that that option of having to go the adoptive route if they want to become parents. Yeah, yeah. I hope we see some change in that area as well. What do you think are the biggest concerns of non-traditional families as they begin the adoption process? 
I think that there's a lot of unknowns. I think the process can be overwhelming. So one of the things that I try to do for my clients is break it down into small palatable steps. I think the biggest insecurity is not being selected and they feel like they have a little bit less uh, control over what maybe a birth mother or birth parent might want. But I think that the other concern and some of the other uh, issues is financial. And that's where I think you know agencies like your own and some of our nonprofits like Help Our Staff really do help take some of that concern away, especially if the non-traditional family feels like they are going to have to be a part of the search process for longer because they are not, you know, the cookie cutter. So I, I think it's financial and, and again being selective who they are. Okay. Okay. And and sort of as a follow-up to that, I guess what are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions that they're often relieved to find out are untrue? I think one of the biggest things is that there is more inclusivity than they realize out there. That of course agencies can have a mission statement of their own and you know decide who they want to partner with and, and work with to build families, but that there are just as many agencies and organizations who are welcoming with open arms, you know, anyone in um, the LGBTQ community. And they're very relieved to see that there is more inclusivity than what they've perhaps seen. I think one of the other big misconceptions is something I mentioned at the beginning, which is that they have to be married legally, which is, I think, why a lot more same-sex couples are coming forward now, even though you know marriage equality is still relatively new. They're understanding that they don't have to have that marital status. And that was a big misconception, I think, for a lot of couples. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's still out there with, you know, singles of of both genders. I get a lot of calls, you know, asking if they're they're even allowed to adopt. Um, and your your first point um, is is very true as well. You know that over the years, you know, so many of the various agencies that I work with have dropped uh, some restrictions that they used to have as far as families that they would work with. So it really is nice to see places becoming more inclusive. Sure. And I think the, the adoptive families should know that there are more resources for them. They don't have to start with an agency that perhaps doesn't meet with their you know, mission statement or with their type of family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, here's one of the things that I talk to a lot of families about. I kind of want to get your thoughts on it. And I, I often explain to them that if you think about it, there are basically two steps to getting matched, right? So first is that you have to get presented. And then once you get presented, of course, you have to get selected. And I find that for non-traditional families, the bigger issue is often in step one, right? Because just as the adoptive parents fill out a questionnaire with what they're looking for in a birth mom, the expectant mom fills out a questionnaire with what she's looking for in a family. And and she does check a lot of those boxes that I was talking about in the introduction. So if they don't meet those check boxes, it can be difficult to get presented. And what I often talk to families about is, you know, a way to mitigate that is, you know, being as flexible as they can in terms of what their parameters are, whether we're talking about the race of the child or their budget or the social medical background that they're comfortable with or the level of openness they're willing to have after the placement. Because, you know, if an agency has a an expectant mom's questionnaire and she says, you know, I want a family with X, Y, and Z, and they don't have enough families with X, Y, and Z, you know, that's when they're going to say to her, 
well, okay, this family has X and Y, like, why don't you look at them anyway? And then sometimes she'll read their profile, she'll really connect with them, and she'll suddenly decide that like Z isn't that important after all. So having that that flexibility, and if at all possible, you know, being more flexible than a lot of the more traditional families that are out there can help them to get presented more often and, and to get selected. Any comments or thoughts that you have on that approach? I absolutely agree with you. And one of the things I counsel my clients about when they're making profiles or putting together their checklist, so to speak, is to be as thorough, as detailed, and as open as possible. Because you hit the nail on the head when you said maybe, you know, potential birth mother believes that X is extremely important to her. But when she sees the fabric of the family really with some context on it, their profile, maybe it isn't as important. But if they had given a bare bones explanation or something that seemed a little more generic, then maybe she wouldn't have been willing to overlook, you know, what was previously a non-negotiable. So right. I, always, I always try to, to suggest that they keep an open mind both with who they would like to to see or envision as a child to match with their family, but also to give as much color and context into their family lifestyle as possible so that there can be more of a connection and that their profile jumps off the page as people as opposed to just another number. Yeah, they definitely have to work, I think, a bit harder on, on the profile. We're always a bit harder on our on our clients uh, that, that come from that non-traditional background to make sure that, um, yeah, they don't have that that luxury of, of not having a top-notch profile, right? Right. And, and I, I specifically work with some of my single parents in creating a very clear picture of understanding that just because there's not a partner or a significant other, that it doesn't mean there's a void of love and family and connection and friendships that this child might potentially come into. And I really try to encourage the single parents that are adopting to give even more context about the community and the network that they have as well. Right, right. Because I, I think that you see some people almost right in a way that they're sort of apologizing for that, right? For, for who they are or what they think that she might think that they're missing. Yes. Um, whereas it's so important to just talk about who you are and what you have to offer and find the person who connects with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, is there anything different in the relationship between non-traditional families and expectant moms regarding their communication during the match and or after the placement? And, and I'll give you some context as to why I'm asking that. And obviously these are sweeping generalizations that, that I'm about to make. But so for instance, I see with some older couples, um, some of them have more traditional views of how adoption should work and are much less comfortable with having some of that contact. Other older families I find are just you know, so comfortable in their own skin that they're the opposite end and they're even more flexible. You know, I see again, like you were talking about, I, I see that many single women sort of welcome more openness as a way to to have a larger village. I find that often gay male couples seem a bit more comfortable with openness. And again, maybe that goes back to the concept because nobody's role feels threatened in, in any way. But those are some of the generalizations of, of what I see in terms of the differences that there might be in communication. What do you see with that? I have absolutely seen a, what you've mentioned about the older adopting couples. And it's very unfortunate because it's a, it's a lingering remnant of the stigma that adoption used to have. We have very much moved into the era of the adoption and supporting the adoptee, the adoptive parents, and the birth parent, and making all three of those parties feel secure and safe. 
Whereas perhaps, you know, a couple decades ago, it wasn't necessarily the case and it was more stigmatized. So I have seen that. there's been a reluctance with older couples for openness. And when I work with them or an agency works with them and explains to them a little bit more of what that context looks like, I think they come around. But I agree with you and I encourage my my clients not to let openness, you know, sort of get in their way. Openness can, can can take a lot of different forms. It can mean just popping some pictures, you know, in an email or a, a quick progress report. And who doesn't love bragging about their child? So right. I, I think that that some some people think that there's a little bit more of an expectation with openness than others. But it goes back to what we talked about that if maybe they're not the ABCXYZ cookie cutter, that being a little more flexible and being willing to you know, provide that update to birth mother, you know, quarterly makes them a little bit more desirable. And I think that, that I am seeing more willingness, as you mentioned, with the LGBT community, because there is more of a foundation of, of village and community and a value system there that, that's been wonderful to see. Great, great. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Are there any legal concerns or differences that any of these groups of families need to be aware of, such as maybe the need to do a a second parent adoption after finalization or anything like that? So that's a really, really great question. Now, if we are going through the adoption process with a same-sex couple that is not married, we just need to be clear that they are co-petitioners. We just need to be clear from the outset that they are doing this together. We see more of the second parent adoption scenario when potentially there's, they're using their own biological material or when one of the parties is a biological parent or biologically related. Maybe it's a niece, nephew, someone in that person's family. But as long as they are co-petitioners from a legal perspective, we're fine. The only other question that people come to me and often want to know about is we do have some clearance requirements, but clearance requirements do not ask you about sexual orientation. They ask about do you have any criminal history, convictions, or or child abuse. And I think that having an investigation done does sometimes scare people. But these are things that if, you know, there's nothing in your background, there's no issue. And even when I've had clients who had potentially drug histories or some criminal backgrounds, as long as they're able to be open and upfront about them, they're fine. But I think there's this misconception that there's going to be an investigation into sexual orientation, and there really isn't. From the legal perspective, they're not going to delve more into anything beyond just those two clearances. Okay, great. Thank you for that clarification. Um, Let's start to wrap up with some logistical questions. What resources might be particularly helpful to these families? Sure. I, I think that there are some great agencies particularly yours, um, Help Us Adopt. There are some other agencies that really are welcoming in terms of having opening webinars to give them an introduction. I know a Baby Step Adoption does that for parents who are looking. But a great resource is also talking to an adoption attorney. I run my initial consultations sort of like as an overview to what they could see that's out there. There's also of course, message boards. And I I think this is probably something we should talk about as well. But social media is Mm -hmm. absolutely huge. It is a huge resource. Families can make their own profiles. I've seen couples make pages for themselves, letting people know that they're looking to adopt, they're looking to match, looking for assistance with resource. 
And social media is a great way for parents to post. And then you never know who in your network has been through the adoption process, has a great referral, has an opportunity for you to talk to somebody or has a book or a blog or a podcast to follow. Social media is a great touchstone. for Excellent. Excellent. And finally, how can adoption professionals help? Sure. I think it's extremely exciting to want to expand your family, but it also can be very overwhelming. And adoption professionals, I think, are best suited to help navigate and narrow that process. Also, at least in my perspective, from my profession, there's a lot of paperwork that needs to be done. And clients utilize me from start to finish in the process to help them navigate that paperwork, whether it's the legal pleadings themselves, reviewing contracts, helping them establish and formalize their profile, helping them before a home study report comes out. I really think that people get bogged down in that overwhelmingness of paperwork. And I think professionals Mm -hmm. like you and I can really help narrow that for them and take some of the scariness out of it. And sometimes that allows them to really truly focus on the family building part. And then we can do some of the logistics for them. Great, great. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Diana. And and again, my guest today has been Diana Schimmel. She's a partner at the law firm of Martine, Katz, Scanlon and Schimmel. Diana has generally offered a free consultation to any listener. So just mention that you heard her on adopting the podcast and you can do a free consultation with her office. Potential clients can contact Diana via her firm's website at family law, M as in Mary, K as in Karen, S as in Sam, familylawmks.com or via her main office phone number of 856 856- 3969500 again that's 8563969500 and listeners most of all i'd like to thank you for tuning in i hope you've learned something today that has given you confidence in your ability to successfully adopt please be good to yourselves take care and i'll catch you next time <music>